Tarling, and thanks for listening to Arc Remote Coaching Radio. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about training fundamentals. I recently released a new podcast episode and received some really constructive feedback. It made me realize that the way I use terms may not be equivalent to how people are listening are using them. And this is because I come from a coaching background, which is based in exercise and sports science. Now, this background uses biological and physiological terminology as the norm. So I will use the term stress, for example, which for me is a logical term to describe your body's response to a stimulus. It's a rather broad biological term. It can be narrowed down to specific examples and types of stress. I realize that when most people talk about stress, they mean it in a purely psychological sense. So when I use stress, it might be interpreted to be only talking about psychological stress. So I'm gonna elaborate on stress, its meaning and a few other things related to training because of this. So if you don't understand the context of the terms I'm using, then what I'm saying is likely gonna be misinterpreted. And I wanna avoid that. I wanna make sure that what I'm intending to say is most likely gonna be perceived by you in the same light. So in the past, I've covered various aspects of what I consider to be fundamental to training theory. These have been released since 2017 or so as a series of videos and podcasts called Whiteboard Wednesdays. I figured though, I probably need to rehash on some key or fundamental concepts. Uh, this will establish a suitable baseline for future episodes and content. So without further ado, let's talk on ARC Remote Coaching Radio on training theory, part one, assume knowledge. So to be effective with training towards whatever your outcome is, there are a number of aspects that will contribute to your success. It is relatively easy to simplify and focus on just one thing at the expense of others uh, as a way to make it easy to understand. But we have to appreciate that the body is inherently complex. You as a person have biological, psychological and social aspects that can contribute or detract from your success in training for whatever your outcomes are. And these biological, psychological and social aspects are interrelated. So you as a human, you have biologically, psychologically and socially evolved to survive in a particular environment as a species. We aren't optimised to live underwater. We aren't optimised to live high up in trees. But we do have a degree of adaptability in our daily lives to our environment. And this brings me to the first concept which is the idea of homeostasis. So if you paid attention in high school, probably in grade eight or grade nine, you might've been introduced into biology or some sort of similar subject. So homeostasis, what is it? Well, it's a dynamic state of equilibrium of the body and it's required for optimal function for an organism and includes a whole bunch of variables, things like body temperature, fluid balance, energy balance, your blood pH levels, your blood oxygen levels, blood glucose levels, potassium, sodium, calcium concentrations, and all these things and a few others need to be kept within some preset limits, which are called the homeostatic range. So your body will compensate and adjust all of these measures to keep it overall within this ideal range. The values for each of them aren't a fixed single value. They have a slight degree of variance, which is considered to be acceptable. And a classic example is your body temperature. Throughout the day, your body temperature will fluctuate as part of your circadian rhythm. Importantly, your brain seeks to maintain homeostasis and it will upregulate and downregulate certain aspects 
and certain physiological functions of your body to obtain it. We can disturb the state of homeostasis. And you know, how can we disturb homeostasis? There's a heap of ways. A really simple way is just to eat less food. That will put a whole bunch of your physiological functions out of whack. Your body will compensate for this though. It will liberate energy from fat stores as well as from tissue in order to get the energy it needs to keep you alive. You'll be out of homeostatic balance at this point, but once your body weight reduces, your energy demands decrease. Ideally, your body's trying to get you to a state where your energy expenditure matches your energy intake, and when it finds that, it'll go back to its balanced state. Another take on this is called allostasis. So it's a state of variable equilibrium in the body. And in this, your body will trade off certain aspects of its physiology to optimize other aspects of its physiology. So whilst homeostasis has you know, a degree of range, allostasis accepts that your body is constantly trading off different things in order to optimize itself for its current environment. The six things that underpin allostasis are that organisms are designed, inverted commas, to be efficient, that the efficiency requires reciprocal trade-offs. This efficiency has a need to be able to predict future needs as well. Uh, this prediction requires each sensor of your body to adapt to the expected range of input. Prediction demands that each effector adapt its output to the expected range of demand. And then finally, predictive regulation depends on behavior, while neural mechanisms also adapt. Now, some people say that allostasis is just homeostasis rebranded. So if we look at homeostasis, which is trying to achieve a degree of balance, and allostasis, which is a sort of dynamic balance, that sets us up for everything else we're going to talk about. Before we get into a bit more training theory related to adaptation and improving, we also need to define health and fitness. These two terms are often used interchangeably or they're perceived to be similar or the same thing. They aren't. So health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and it is not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. That was defined in 1946 by the World Health Organization. A way to look at health is its longevity and quality of life. It's not restricted to just physical aspects. It has psychological and it has social aspects as well. And all three of those need to be in balance with each other. An example could be you might go and eat what is considered to be an unhealthy meal with some friends and family. And this might actually improve your social and psychological health at the cost of a bit of physical health. It might actually be for the greater good. Additionally, you might follow a strict diet looking to improve certain physical aspects but it comes at the expense of social or psychological aspects. So health is really about finding the right balance between all three. That is not just prioritizing the physical aspects. For me personally, it's more important for my health to eat pizza with my partner Jade and my kids when I'm home with them on a Friday or Saturday night than it is for me to consume my normal strict diet. And sometimes it's more important that I have a beer and relax while this is going to reduce my physical health to a degree it's going to improve aspects of my psychological health as I get a break mentally from what I'm doing. This brings us to fitness, and I use this term with its specific meaning. And fitness is simply suitability for a role or a task. That is not the same as health, and it is not a positively elevated level of health. It is not how lean you are. It is not how aesthetically appealing your body is as defined by whatever the current social trends are as these trends, by the way, change over time. And it's not how good you are at doing aerobic work. Fitness is task specific. It is optimization for a particular task or role. 
certain qualities, whether they be physical, social, or psychological, are needed for a particular task or role, and these come at the expense of suitability of other tasks and roles. You might have to trade away certain aspects of your health in order to improve certain aspects of your fitness. You also hear the term fitness used related to evolution. Darwin's quote, survival of the fittest, comes to mind. For fitness, according to Darwin, he's actually talking about genetic fitness, which is the suitability of a species to its environment. Now this involves natural selection and sexual selection within a species. It is more about reproductive success. So survival of the fittest actually means survival of the species that can leave the most copies of itself in subsequent generations. This comes back to the root meaning of fitness being suitability. And in this case, it's genetic suitability of a species in its environment. We also see genetic fitness in bacteria. We have certain bacteria that are becoming resistant to antibiotics. They have strong genetic fitness. We can't actually kill them off. They are developing more resistance to more powerful drugs, which means as an organism, they are doing really well. So kudos to them if they're listening. So what I'm getting to is the fact that health and fitness are not interchangeable terms. You can develop both, but there is likely going to be a trade-off between them. With this in mind, high-level athletes are not necessarily good examples of health. And this is for a number of reasons, and I'll list some examples. Firstly, if you look at sports that have weight classes, so strength sports, weightlifting, powerlifting, strong man, combat sports, so mixed martial arts, boxing, and a few others. A lot of these sports involve athletes that will do weight cuts. And there's a few different ways you can cut weight to make weight for a competition, but it can involve a significant reduction in energy intake, which equates to unhealthy nutrition practices, and or extreme dehydration. This is effectively unhealthy. Both of these are massive disturbances to homeostasis. We are affecting our energy balance and we are affecting our fluid balance by doing either or both of these. But it's being done to optimize performance. If you can weigh in in a particular weight class, regardless of what you weigh during the competition, you may have an advantage. Cutting weight has killed people in the past, usually through extreme dehydration. It can also severely affect endocrine processes, causing damage or failure of organs. So yeah, that's a typical athletic pursuit in weight class sports. It can be done in an effective and safe manner, but there are still people that do it in an extremely high risk way in order to gain more competitive advantage against their opposition. Talking of weight, we can also look at being overweight, which can lead to suitability in some sports or particular positions in team sports on the field, or suitability to be successful in certain weight classes and weight class sports. So we can look at super heavyweight weightlifters and powerlifters, sumo wrestlers. Now these examples could be strong. If we look at other sports where you might need a large player uh, in a defensive position, this might result in a tactical or on-field advantage. But these athletes as individuals uh, increasing their likelihood of disease, things like diabetes and coronary heart disease. On the flip side, being underweight that is being of an unhealthy weight, can actually lead to suitability in some sports and some weight classes as well. Next, we have body image issues that can develop from sport. This comes from bodybuilding. It can also come from other sports like gymnastics and even performing arts like dance. High-level athletes have an increased injury risk. 
And this is very broad and it covers things like collision and brain damage, muscle and connective tissue tears, broken bones. And all these can occur in contact and non-contact sports. Training for these sports also is an exposure to at times excessive training loads, which might or hopefully optimize a physical quality. But as we know from research, increasing training load generally increases the risk of attaining an injury. It's just a matter of numbers. There is more wear and tear on the body as a whole. And you hear people also talk about imbalances between certain muscular groups. It might be more important to sacrifice one part of your body's function in order to approve another part of your function to be successful in your sport. For female athletes in particular, there is the female athlete triad, which sees eating disorders, amenorrhea, and osteoporosis develop. We also can't ignore the fact that a lot of elite and even non-elite athletes dope. Athletes that dope are optimizing their performance at the expense of their health. We also see some pretty catastrophic effects of doping in females and the impact on their physiology. And if you're curious of this, just look up some East German athletes. You see some pretty damning effects of the East German uh, doping program from the 60s and 70s. Additionally, there's also social and psychological negative effects that can result from elite levels of sport. So high levels of athletic performance might come at the expense of mental and social aspects of someone's health. This can involve things like isolation and removal from friends and family, where they're prioritizing their sporting prowess. They might miss key life events, like the birth of their child. They might also find themselves unable to socialize as much as they may want to or may need to in order to improve their prowess in their chosen sport. Now these examples aren't exhaustive, but there are some aspects of trade-offs and it's highlighting the fact that fitness is a trade-off. You may trade off aspects of your health in order to improve your performance. And of course, it all comes down to a matter of investment and payoff and what levels of trade-off you are willing to accept as an individual. And that really comes down to you. Moving on, I really wanna get into this term a bit and that's stress. So when I use the term stress, I mean your body's response to a stimulus. Typically, but not always from the environment. The response your body undergoes is a disturbance to homeostasis and it results in biological actions by your body. Now stress is caused by a stressor that is something that will disturb the actual state of homeostasis. You might think of a line appearing out of nowhere, a large explosion or a car accident, someone pulling a knife or a gun on you. When these things occur, your body will respond and we see the fight or flight response as an initial response to catastrophic or high stressful events. But stresses aren't always physical things that manifest from the actual environment. You can have the same response in anticipation of a threat, and you can also have the same response through your own cognition. That's right, your brain is so powerful, it can cause your body to respond in the same situation, which is crazy, but just demonstrates the power and strength of the brain. Your brain, though, is built to keep you alive. And this response is a protective mechanism. It's seeking to prime your body for a situation where it needs to either fight or run like hell. Further, your cognition can generate the same response through your own thinking. So your brain can interpret your thoughts that will result in a biological response without the presence of an actual physical threat to your body. And it's that aspect of stress that is most commonly referred to 
or talked about when other people that aren't me talk about stress. The definition I've laid out encompasses psychological stress. So when I say stress, I mean any form of stress with psychological pain or a manifestation or cognition being just one version of that. Running generates a physical stress in your body that causes a response. So does strength training. So does reducing your dietary intake, reducing water, consuming excess water. These are all examples of physical manifestations of stress. But additionally, things like having arguments with your co-workers or your friends and family, pressure from work, awkward social interactions, doing exams, all of these can also result in a stress response. They all result in a disturbance to homeostasis. So when I say stress, I mean a broad term that generates a biological response from your body. It can have physical or psychological origins. It can be real or imagined. It can be anticipated or it can be a current event. Now these biological responses are things that are going to affect your state of homeostasis. So changes in your heart rate, blood pressure, focus, concentration. Your body is doing a whole bunch of things, including releasing hormones, and is gonna prioritize specific functions over others in order to keep you alive. The use of stress in the way that I've defined it goes back to Hans Dale in the 1930s. He released this really famous article in a journal called Nature, talking about the stress of life. Now about 40 odd years later, he went a little bit further and broke stress into four different categories. So the, the first is eustress, which is a form of stress that's going to enhance a function or cause a positive adaptation. Distress, which is a type of stress that degrades function or a negative adaptation. We then have hypostress, which is a low level of stress that doesn't cause a response, and hyperstress, which is an excessive level of stress that causes too much of a response. Additionally, a good friend Hans developed a model that he called general adaptation syndrome, and it describes the body's general response to stress. So it initially commences with some type of stimulus or a stressor being experienced or perceived. There are then three distinct phases. Firstly, the alarm phase, which is your initial reaction. That'll see things like an increase in your heart rate, your adrenaline levels increase, resulting in an energy boost, and also your cortisol levels increase. And this is known as the fight or flight response. The second phase is a resistance phase where your body is gonna commence repairing the damage it's just done to itself. It's gonna improve your preparation for future exposures to a similar stress or stimulus. You have a degree of resistance to future bouts of that stress. So you can pro probably to tolerate a little bit more. The third phase is known as the exhaustion phase. And this occurs when the stressor has exceeded your capacity to deal with it. And you remain in a heightened state and you then become overwhelmed by the amount of stress. Your performance degrades incredibly. You can actually tolerate less stress than the start point. Your bodily functions degrade, your immune system reduces, and you are overall weakened. Ideally, we want to avoid this exhaustion phase. Now in training theory, we use the general adaptation syndrome sort of as the base model, which then grows into what's called stress recovery adaptation. It's the basis of how we promote an increase in a particular capacity of the body. Undertaking training generates a stress that will actually decrease your performance, your body will adapt or resist, and ideally, this level of resistance is increased for future bouts of that stress. And that might see you get stronger, faster, more powerful, 
gaining more endurance or whatever else. And fundamental to all this is that concept of homeostasis. And we're actually disturbing our body's balance or state of equilibrium with our training stressor. Or if we look at it from an allostatic point of view, our body is compensating for a new environment or change. Now to achieve an adaptation or a positive change that we're seeking, it requires exposure to a stressor. Importantly though, the volume, the intensity, and the frequency of that exposure to that stress matters. If we have too little stress, we will get no meaningful adaptation. So we're experiencing hypostress. If we have too much stress though, we'll see a degradation in our physical qualities kin to the exhaustion phase in general adaptation syndrome. To actually see an improvement in the stress in terms of its volume, intensity, and frequency needs to be balanced. So it should neither be hypo or hyper stress, and we want it to be in the form of eustress, one that causes a positive adaptation, not a negative adaptation. Additionally, recovery is needed to allow the body to mobilize and respond to that stress in the future. So you can't just expose yourself to stress and think you're automatically stronger, faster, more powerful. Your performance has degraded. It needs a period of time to actually develop resistance. And this is the same as general adaptation syndrome. That alarm phase sees a reduction in your resistance, but the resistance phase sees an increase in your resistance. Overall, the point to take away here is more training or more exposure to stress is not necessarily better. We wanna find the correct amount. We start looking at training in a more specific sense though. We find that resistance to a specific stress comes at the expense of resistance to other stresses. Stress is specific and your body will prioritize its recovery to one particular stress that it is exposed to. A simple example would be acclimatization to a hot and humid climate. Your body will adapt to this and it will make you less adapted to a cold and dry climate. Additionally, astronauts in space are exposed to less gravitational force in space than they are on Earth. As a result, they experience muscle wastage because they're exposed to less gravitational force, which in this sense is the stress that actually causes their muscles to maintain a certain level of capacity. Your body is efficient. It will conserve energy by not maintaining features or functions that it doesn't need. Maintaining tissue and certain bodily functions costs energy, and your body does not want to waste its resources unless there is a suitable demand for their use. So your body will optimize itself to operate in a particular environment. It will not optimize itself to work in all environments. Now, if we start to get a bit more spicy, now we can actually look at this in terms of high threat environments as well. So your body being optimized for a high threat environment means it is not optimized for a low threat environment. In a high threat environment, whatever that may be, the plains of Africa where there are lions trying to eat you, a war zone, or a high stress situation like a fire or a car crash, we see high threat, high risk, and survival is related to the short term. Your body will optimize your survival for the next 10 seconds, the next 10 minutes, at the expense of optimizing its survival for the next 10 years. If you're exposed to a low threat, low risk environment though, survival is more related to the long term. If your exposure to a high threat or high risk environment is over a very long period of time, your body will adapt to that 
and it will, that will become the new norm or your state of homeostasis when you move that person then to a low threat or a low stress environment, they're maladapted. This also comes back to health and fitness. And that is being healthy is balancing your body. That is physically, mentally, and socially for longevity and quality of life. Being fit is optimizing your body for a particular task or role. That is being unbalanced in general, but able to perform in specific circumstances extremely well. Also, what you perceive as an individual as optimal and balanced is not necessarily what these terms mean in terms of energy use and survival of your body and the species as a whole. But training can be designed to promote health outcomes. It can be designed to promote fitness outcomes or a mixture of both health and fitness outcomes. You can have elements of fitness and health, but there will be trade-offs and finding those trade-offs is really up to you. Why does all this matter? Well, when it comes to training, we're trying to generate specific effects. And the goal of training in general is to cause a positive adaptation of a certain set of qualities. You can do that for individuals and you can do it for teams. And it isn't reserved to purely physical qualities either. There may be psychological, there may be social aspects that can be trained. But most importantly, the stresses need to be suitable to what the adaptation is you're trying to occur. More stress is not always better, as too much can lead to distress or hyperstress, which can exhaust your body's capacity to tolerate and respond to any stress. When it comes to the body's systems, a lot of people will fixate and focus just on muscles, because muscles are these things you can kind of see, and we know they do work. However, your body is a complex system, and a whole lot more goes into it to achieve a positive adaptation. So if we're looking to improve physical qualities, regardless if we're doing aerobic or anaerobic training, there will be cardiovascular adaptations, respiratory adaptations, neural adaptations, skeletal adaptations, connective tissue adaptations, endocrine adaptations, and muscular adaptations. When you bring in psychological aspects, the list gets even larger. So don't just be fixated on muscles. They are one of the many things that are needed to be developed to improve a quality, but they are not the only thing that needs to be developed. Talking of developing the body and the effects of training, we can also break effects down into six different types. So we can have acute effects, and these are effects on the body that occur during exercise. We can have immediate effects, which occur following a single session. We can have cumulative effects, which occur as a result of continued or multiple training sessions. There's also delayed or chronic effects, which will come about after a set time interval. Partial effects occur as a result of a single training means. So for example, I might do bench press and rows to improve an upper body effect overall. Each lift, the bench press and the row, both contributing a partial effect to my overall adaptation. And lastly, we have residual effects. Now these are the retention of changes after the cessation of training beyond the time an adaptation can actually take place. So that means following a period of time where you haven't been exposed to a training stimulus, you retain a particular effect and it is not a result of a delayed adaptation occurring. You've improved a quality and then you've maintained it for a period of time. Now residual effects are typically will degrade over time but the degradation of certain physical qualities occur at different rates. 
Next related to effects is of course dose. And the dose of a single bout or exposure of training and then the dose of all training exposures in relation to each other needs to be considered. So we can't look at training just as a single lift or a single session. We have to consider exercises in relation to each other during a session, sessions in relation to each other over the course of something like a week, different weeks of training in relation to each other, different months and so on. And the dose of training of course matters. So the intensity, the volume and the frequency. You need the correct dose, not necessarily just more of a dose, just like a drug. There can be positive effects from a training dose. There can also be negative effects. And we want it to balance these out to overall get the right amount of the effect we require. And that might be acute, immediate, cumulative, delayed, partial or residual. The next concept I want to talk about is the law of diminishing returns. So your adaptive response to training will reduce over time. That is, your rate of improvement decreases the longer you improve. The largest improvements you are going to make with training are the first and initial improvements you make with training. As you go from being a beginner to being intermediate to being advanced, it becomes harder and harder and harder to maintain the magnitude of your initial improvements. You still improve, however, those improvements might just take a lot longer to eventuate or realize. All right, nearly done. Following on from that is of course performance. Performance is what you can do in a given moment and it fluctuates based on a number of factors. Your fitness or your suitability or capacity to undertake a task is not the same as your performance levels. What you're capable of and then what you can demonstrate right now are not always the same thing. When we're looking at competing in sport or we're looking at testing a particular lift or a 5K runtime, we want to optimize our performance levels. At times that can actually see a reduction in training in order to realize some of those longer term effects such as delayed, cumulative and residual effects of training. And this brings me to the last thing I want to touch on and that is optimal training stimulus is not the same as optimal performance. So doing your one rep max of whatever lift will not necessarily improve your ability to do one rep maxes of that lift. This also applies if you're gonna do your five rep max or your 10 rep max, or if you wanna run 5Ks as fast as you can, that will not necessarily make you better at running 5Ks next time. Yeah, how does that make any sense? I've talked about stress because it comes down to the volume, intensity, and frequency of the stress. There are negative results that come about from stress and there are positive results. In training, we're trying to accumulate a whole bunch of positive results. We need those negative results as well to drive certain change and adaptation. And then we wanna peak and maximize our performance when it matters. Anyway, that wraps up this episode on training theory part one, and we've covered off on assumed knowledge. In the future, we'll get back into a few more training concepts and how we can apply them to better design and implement training programs. And if you haven't already, don't forget to follow ARC Remote Coaching on Facebook, on Instagram, and YouTube. Or check out our website, arcremotecoaching.com.